this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today has won the 2019 Bollinger Everyman Woodhouse Prize. Her letters to her sister became her first book, Love Nina, Dispatches from Family Life, which was adapted into the television series starring Helena Bonham Carter. She's gone on to write many more books, and on the show today she tells us of her life and the inspiration for her feel-good novels, the latest of which is One Day I Shall Astonish the World. Nina Stivy, welcome to Meet the Writers. Hello. It's been wonderful to finally get you in the studio. We've talked at other venues and other places, and it's wonderful to, to have you here. Um, your work is really all based, uh, it began, on your leaving home and coming to London and the extraordinary experiences you had after that. Tell us, though, about your time before you left home. Before I left home, I had... So I left home age 20 um, and I'd left school at 15 because I just got fed up with it and I'd got a part-time job and they were saying, why don't you work more hours and have more money? And that seemed like a great idea. And so I worked full-time in a nursing home and then uh, when I was 17, I worked as a dental nurse and it all seemed great and I had relatively... um, lovely things and money and so on and was very pleased with myself and then suddenly when I was about 18, 19 all my friends started to leave because they had stayed at school and they were going to university including my brother who was coming up to London from Leicester where we lived Leicestershire you know the county and um, it suddenly seemed like a really bad idea to have left and I was in panic you know I had that teenage thing of thinking what what have I done you know so I couldn't go to university because I didn't have any O levels or A levels um so I thought well I better quickly learn to drive and become a nanny or an au pair or that kind of thing and so I did I knew about this magazine called the lady magazine because the ladies in the nursing home where I had worked used to read it and I knew there were nanny appointments in that newspaper in that magazine so I got a few copies of that and applied for a few jobs and this one job really appealed to me because the woman advertising for a nanny was a single mum and that really appealed to me I didn't want a man around where I was going to be a nanny and I applied for it went came up to London to have the interview and um and I didn't get the job the first time actually but then a few months later I did and that's how I ended up in London. Tell us about Mary Kay Wilmers, who was your new employer. Yeah, so, well, the first time that she interviewed me, we got on terribly well, and it was obvious that I should go and work for her. But the boys, who were then eight, maybe seven and nine at that time, they I got on with those two as well, but um, I didn't support the right football team. <laughs> so they took on this Leeds United supporting nanny, who... I think she was probably quite nice, but she didn't stay very long. And luckily, Mary Kay Wilmers had kept my phone number, my mum's phone number then, and um, rang up a few months later and said, does Nina still want the job? And I did. So off I went, and Mary Kay Wilmers was... She was was like my mum if my mum hadn't been a drunk. (laughs) You know, she was booky, funny, sort of... She was, she wasn't swanky. 
I think I'd worried I'd end up as a nanny of someone swanky with lots of white carpets, but it wasn't like that. The house was quite rickety with, you know, big gaps between the floorboards where 50p pences would fall down and that kind of thing. And slugs uh, might come up. And she was editor of the London Review of Books. Oh, sorry, George. Yes, this is the important <laughs> thing that you're driving at. I'm, I'm remembering the floorboards. You're, yes, you're thinking of her accomplishments. Yes, she was then, I think, the deputy editor of the London Review of Books, working under Carl Miller. Um, but that meant, it's interesting that I haven't talked about that or I didn't immediately talk about that because I had no interest in any of that. So it was Gloucester Crescent, there was Alan Bennett across the road and Jonathan Miller up the road and Alice Thomas Ellis and Claire Tomalin and all these incredibly accomplished, brilliant people. But I, I didn't really care about that at all. I mean, I kept being told, you know, Jonathan's doing a wonderful production of Rigoletto, but I would think, well, he doesn't know how to reverse park. I've seen him <laughs> and he's no, he's rubbish. Or, you know, and it, it was, I think that's why my letters home were amusing because I wasn't sort of writing about Alan Bennett's cutting-edge television techniques. I was writing about his inability to make a decent cup of tea. Which is amazing. So the, the the first book, Love Nina, that really was based on real letters? It was all real letters. They'd been edited lightly to remove very sensitive things where I'm being very rude or talking about my private life. But yes, it's just the letters. And in fact, my editor at Penguin got hold of the letters before I had a chance to doctor them. I, I would have, to be honest. I, I probably would have. But she got hold of them because she happened to be working with Sam Frears and um, Sam Frears' mother is Mary Kay Wilmers and she said, if you want to know about Sam, you should read these letters uh, because I'd shown them to Mary Kay. So I had no choice but just to let them be entirely authentic, which they are. So tell us then about that progression from, from nannying mm. to writing the letters for, uh, and then that them being published being published and, and being like made 30, into this 30 years later incredible successful television program. so what happened was i was writing to my sister because we shared a bedroom for 20 years and then suddenly we weren't together anymore and i missed those that sort of nightly having a cigarette in bed with her in the bed across the room and and just talking about the day i i really did miss that and it was in the olden days when you couldn't just phone somebody up because there was the phone bill I mean, I don't know, we don't care about that kind of thing anymore, but, it, you know, Mary Kay would have gone nuts if I'd have been phoning up all the time. It would have shown up on the bill. Mm. So I started scribbling little notes and um, telling her about my... telling Victoria, my sister, about my life, and then she'd write back. And to be honest, her letters were really quite dull because I knew, <laughs> I knew her life. I knew she still worked in the nursing home where I'd worked, and she, in fact, lived there, and she lived in the next village to where... I'd grown up, and so her letters were of very little interest to me, but mine were of interest to her because I was slightly glamorising my life. I think I was sort of gilding the lily a bit, but I was saying, oh, you know, there's this guy across the road called Alan Bennett, and, of course, she wouldn't know who he was. I didn't know who he was, so I said "He's in. he was in Coronation Street, just to sort of elevate him a little bit to, so that she'd understand that he, you know, it was somebody culturally... But I couldn't say, you know, he was part of Beyond the Fringe because we wouldn't have known that. It's before our time. So I was writing these letters back and then... And that was in the 80s. And then when I was pregnant in 1999, 
Vic was moving house and she found this box of letters and I went to see her to get baby advice because she's a health visitor and we just sat and read read them and and even I who had written them found them very funny and charming and I told Mary Kay about them I said there's these letters and she said oh well I'll have a look at them that, that, that sounds great and then we sort of forgot all about it and then years later again sort of in 20 in 2000 and eight or something 2007 it was Mary Kay a big birthday of Mary Kay's I think it might have been her 70th Andrew O'Hagan the writer emailed me and said could you write a little tribute to Mary Kay we're collecting little tributes and putting together a little book for her birthday and I thought well I can't write anything nice because that will make her sick and I can't write anything you know mean because that won't be nice or appropriate and I remembered those letters, so I rang Vic and said, do you still have that box of letters? If you do, f- dig through and find one that mentions Mary Kay. And so she did. And so I sent that this... F- actually, it was one of the very first letters. I typed it out and emailed it to Andy O'Hagan and said, will this do? It's about my first meeting with Mary Kay. And he said yes. He then read it at Mary Kay's birthday party in front of various publishers and so forth. And that's what started it all off. And what were you doing in the interim? You mentioned being pregnant, so you stopped being a nanny at some point. Oh, yeah, I stopped being... Well, one of the great things about being the nanny to Mary Kay Wilmers was she didn't sort of, you know, force me to sweep the floor all the time. In fact, I was such a rubbish cleaner, she got a cleaner. Um, And she kept saying things to me like... You know, why did you leave school? You're obviously very bright. You should do a degree. And in fact, I got this new boyfriend who worked for Claire Tomlin, who was about to go to university, and he said the same thing. He said, why don't you do a degree? And I said, well, I can't. I don't have any, you know, O-levels or A-levels. So I quickly snuck in an A-level while I was nannying. I did, I sort of signed up with a college and got the syllabus and then read those books on the syllabus. And I had no idea what to do with them. I was reading return of the native thinking I've no idea what this is all about and I don't know what the exam's going to ask me but luckily this boyfriend of mine had just done his A-levels and knew about studying and he said you know when when Hardy tells us that Eustacia Vi goes to Budmouth he's telling us that she's sexually active and I was like oh okay I'll look out for that kind of thing then and Mary Kay was slightly helpful about that you know with the Chaucer I'd say you know, what's going on here? And she'd say, well, you know, she's obviously, you know, having sex. And I was, I said, well, this whole thing, literature is obviously all about people having sex. <laughs> and so between Mary Kay and my boyfriend, Mark, they got me through the A-level. And then I could apply to go to university. And I ended up going to Thames Polytechnic which was absolutely brilliant, is now the University of Greenwich. And it was a fantastic humanities degree. I mean, really fantastic. We were reading... We weren't just reading the the, 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 the traditional canon. We were reading Petals of Blood and... I mean, I can't even think now, but we were we were reading Salman Rushdie and it was amazing. We were, we were watching Brookside. We, we, were, we looked at all of literature and it was utterly fantastic. And what did you do with that degree? I worked in a dress shop in Camden for a couple of years. Um, and then I said to myself, I must get a proper job, but it has to be in Camden. I can't bear to leave Camden. And there was a publisher in Camden um, called Harcourt Brace Jovanovic. And I applied there thinking, 
well, I want to stay in Camden. So it's either the dress shop here or them. And then they had a, a marketing opening for me. So I went and did I did a couple of years doing marketing for uh, journals, academic journals. And then I thought, actually, I'm watching how this works here and I can see that the commissioning editors are like the demigods. They're, everybody really loves them and looks up to them and goes and buys them sandwiches. That's what I'm going to do. So I had a chat to one of the editors and said, look, how did you get your job? What shall I do? And it was this amazing editor called Jennifer Pegg who died a couple of years ago, but she was an amazing Canadian woman. And she said, you've got to go on the road. You've got to get to know the market. So I became a sales rep for a publisher and I went on the road and I did southern England and Scandinavia and bits of Ireland and, and I did that for a few years getting to know the market and then applied for a job at Routledge to be a commissioning editor and they couldn't not give it to me because I'd been on the road. <laughs> uh, then, finally, a book you'd actually been working on for 30 years. Uh, you published, uh, this is a, your, your first semi-autobiographical novel. It's called Man at the Helm. Yes. So Man at the Helm, I started writing that when I was still at Thames Polytechnic because I did a course called Autobiography and Fiction and in that course that module or whatever they called it, I had to write a bit of autobiography. And it was the only time I ever got an A. And I thought, OK, so I'm not very good at reading and comprehension, but I'm not so bad at writing about my mum, you know, doing naughty things and, you know, life. And so I thought, well, I'll carry on doing that. So I did carry on sort of tweaking that bit of writing until I'd got a novel and I would send that off every now and again to... Well, I used to send it. I used to send it to publishers directly. I didn't know about agents, and in fact, I got a really lovely letter back from Faber saying, "Oh, yeah, you know, we really like it. Send us more." And I freaked out and thought, "No, I, I can't. I can't do this." So I just ignored them, and um, and just carried on doing my ordinary job. But then, and then I, but I carried on. I did carry on sending it about bits of it because I, I enjoyed the process, the excitement, and then the whole letters thing happened and Penguin published those letters as Love Nina and said, my, ed my editor said, have you got anything else? And I said, yeah, I have actually. So I just handed it over and that was great for them and great for me because it's like job done. And um, there we go. After that, you had Paradise Lodge, an almost perfect Christmas, uh, and then Reasons to be Cheerful, which, of course, yeah. as we mentioned, won, won this, this big comedy prize, uh, meaning that they did um, name pigs both Reason and Cheerful. Yes. <laughs> yes, two lovely pigs. Are you in contact with the pigs? I'm not, I haven't really kept in touch with them because, we, because of the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> Right, I see. Uh, <laughs> uh, let's talk about your brand new book. Uh, My brand new book. So it's called One Day I Shall Astonish the World. And I have to say, I think you already have. <laughs> uh, but this book is different because it's actually not autobiographical this time. This is fiction. Yeah, this is sort fiction. of. I have to say, knowing you and reading the book, I think that obviously, as all writers do, you've, yeah. you've drawn on your your own yeah. life. Yeah. Well, the funny thing was, I'd written these three novels and they'd you know, done reasonably well and it it had been lovely to get nice reviews. But I remember somebody said, one day you're just going to have to write fiction and stop writing about yourself and your family. And I thought, oh, God, that's going to be really hard. And it actually was really, really hard to not keep just writing about my family. Um, 
and to to make up a plot. It was hell. I mean, it really was deeply unpleasant. And thinking, um, oh, you know, I'm going to write, it's going to be contemporary, and started it in 1990, thinking that's contemporary, thinking that's not contemporary. It's just that I'm so old. <laughs> so I thought I was writing a contemporary novel, and I thought it was entirely f- fictional, but actually it really has got moments of me. There's no question, you're quite right. Um, but... I did make most of it up and nothing in that book has actually happened to me, the specifics. I mean, I have been through menopause, which my protagonist is, um, you know, the big things. But the little things I did make up, I mean, I I didn't, you know, my husband didn't suddenly produce a child from a previous marriage or anything like that. And that happens in this book. But the things that, where where the character was very me... My editor picked up on and said, look, this person wouldn't behave like this. And I thought, well, I would. So, for instance, when this child turns up from a previous marriage, for me, in real life, that would be a joy. I would love that to happen. <laughs> but apparently most people wouldn't. Would you? Uh, no. <laughs> you see, I really would. I, I, The more the merrier. I've got two children. I'd love them to have more siblings suddenly coming out of the woodwork. But apparently that's not a normal response. So where my character seems incredibly eccentric or where she did seem incredibly eccentric and my editor said, look, let's tone her down, that was me fictionalising her. The real... The, 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 where it, she was like me, she was obviously being very odd. Mm. Mm. So that was quite a... Well, let's talk about it. She's thing. Susan. She's she, Susan, yeah. She works in a university yeah. uh, and that she's been married for 20 years uh, and then kind of realises that, well, she sort of wonders if that's all there is. Yeah, yes. It's funny, isn't it, that I only realised just sitting here how much she is quite like me because she she dropped out of university because she gets pregnant. Now, that didn't happen to me, but I did... I was a bit of a fish out of water in that world in the way that she is. I don't just find that interesting just thinking now. She is suddenly alone because she's in that empty nest situation and she's in quite a a lowly position at the university she's very she loves the university she sort of reveres it doesn't she and she thinks all the academics are terribly important and she's the she's a sort of a the PA to the the vice chancellor and again she puts him on a pedestal and she looks after him she sort of mothers him and she mothers the whole institution in a way and I think a few things happen that that stop her in her tracks and make her realize hang on where are you in all this and she goes to the doctor to talk about her sort of minor menopausal symptoms and I think that's a bit of a wake-up call one of the things that she tells the GP um, is that her husband when she's speaking he puts his fingers in his ears. I mean, he doesn't stick his fingers in his ears, but he sort of leans forward and and blocks her voice out. And I have to say, that was autobiographical. My husband has done that to me at times. And it's quite a thing, but apparently it's quite normal that, that men don't really like hearing women's voices droning on and on. And the doctor, the GP, says to her, you know, you mustn't worry about it. That's just life. Don't worry about it. And I think it was that that set her off, set Susan, sets her off on this, hang on a minute, I need to 
I just need to get a grip and work out what's going on here. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a wonderful read. I have to say, I really, really oh, enjoyed so the glad. book. Um, tell us about the lockdown and coronavirus and how that influenced things. Well, I'd, I decided I'd got to write a fictional book and I cheated by I thought well, I love a workplace novel I love like Joshua Ferris's and then we came to the end things like that where you've got people who are thrown together in the office and there's these weird relationships so I wanted a workplace and I decided I'd make it a university because I've got a friend who works at a university and she could give me the sort of infrastructure and the calendar if you like so I'd say to her what are you doing now what's happening now and she'd say oh we're going to the Confucius Centre to talk about getting more international students so I'd put that in the novel and I, and I decided I'd have the novel would be one academic year and it would be that academic year, 2019-2020. <clears throat> so I started writing and I invented Susan and I invented the Vice-Chancellor. And then every now and again I'd have a catch-up with my pal who was at this university. And she, I said, what's happening now? And she said, we're a bit worried about this pandemic. Uh, I'm sorry, I beg your pardon. We're a bit worried about this virus. And this was sort of December time. And I said, what's that? And she said, well, it's sort of... It's, it's, it's around and we're, we've got to keep an eye on it. And I said, is it going to affect my novel? And she went, it, it could do. And, and I just thought, oh, I'll just carry on. And then it came to sort of February and she, my friend, was saying to her university, we've got to send the students home. And I said, to her, then I was saying to her, have I got to send my students home? And then I said, Actually, I, I can't write this novel this year anymore. I'm going to have to put it back a year because I can't have a pandemic in this novel because Susan and Roy weren't designed to to cope with. And my plot that I've fucking well written, and it's, it's a nightmare to write plot, and it's patronising and hellish. And And then I said to myself, but none of us were designed... They've got to go through it. And so I made them go through it. And there is this um, wonderful sense, isn't there, really, of kind of, of playing God? Yes. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> you very much... I mean, I've, I've said before, I've said on another podcast and somebody heard me say it and they said, wow, you sounded really horrible when you said that. But I did really, before the pandemic, I did want to kill a few people in the novel... Uh, but when that happened, I thought, well, I, actually, I can't now because <laughs> I've got to be gentler because we've all been through this hell and actually some people have actually died and, you know, not to make at all light of that. I've I've got to be more humane. But I would have fucking killed Roy. <laughs> I mean, just, just the whole idea, though, of playing God, which is something you can do in fiction, I mean, that must have been a big shift for you. It was a massive shift, and it used to give me butterflies in my stomach. I mean, really, I'd think, oh, my God, that could happen. And I, I think, oh, this is what it's like being Graham Greene or Hilary Mantel. Well, not so much Hilary Mantel, because she was stuck with history a lot of the time, real history. But, you know, just that anything could happen. And and it was actually, I think it's my, that, this novel we're talking about, is my gateway novel. I now will probably only write fiction because it's so, it was incredibly hard. And and the plot thing is hell. I just don't know, I, I'm, I'm not going to bother too much with plot. I really do find it unbearable that everything has to tie up and you have to have these high points and low points. I just think, no, I'm not actually going to worry too much about that. But I am going to go with my gut, with the, with the, just the, 
excitement of of things happening. That's the big thing. Mm. And also the way you draw characters, which is so, I mean, obviously comes out of the wonderful way that you've managed to describe the real people in in your lives. But your characters are so, I find them so real. Susan is so incredibly relatable. She's got everything in her that that women of our age experience. Yes, I think Um, she has. I I, I do, I think. and And my thing... George is I don't want to waste her I I really I haven't told my editor this yet but I really would like to write her some more because accidentally because of all because of writing her in real time and because bits of my friend who was running that university fed into her and bits of me and bits of you and bits of all of us of our age and the sort of cry of anguish what the fuck is going on who are we why have we let all this happen and what do we do now and 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 we've a lot of us have got children and they're now adults and you know it's and i just think accidentally she's become this sort of every woman of our sort of age mm. And so, yeah, I, I'm very excited by Susan, Susan Fay Warren, and I love that she's got that name. Lots of people come up to me at book events and they say, my name's Susan. And it's so, <laughs> I'm so I don't know how I chose it. I'm, are there many people called Susan? I don't know, but they, they're coming out of the woodwork at me. Extraordinary. I don't want to leave without us just describing her wedding because it was the wonderfulest part of that book, I think. Yeah, well, she, the wedding was really a marketing ploy for her husband, Roy, or her then fiancé. He was working for a golf club and they were, they'd, start, they'd branched out to cater weddings and they needed to get their brochure... So they decided to have a wedding so that they could get the photos and um, they had all sorts of... They had a golf theme. (laughs) And, uh, yeah. Golf-themed cocktails and decor. But it was 1990, and I remember 1990 very well, like it was yesterday. And getting married wasn't the big thing it is now. In fact, women of my age then, we didn't think much to it. We didn't really want to get married. We thought it was a bit rubbish, didn't we? I did. I mean, I only got married five years ago, when really? I was yeah, when I was in my fifties. I just we I think we got married for the admin. I don't know why we got married, but anyway, we did. <laughs> but we but it wasn't that cool to get married. There was no. It was, I don't know. I just think it was a bit embarrassing. And Susan was a bit embarrassed by it. She didn't really invite anybody until she realised that Roy had got more guests than her. And then she invites some people that actually she hardly knows. She hardly knew them. <laughs> it's a very, very funny book. And I think it absolutely does just encapsulate where we all were. The, the fact that you were writing it in real time yeah. uh, just shows us what was going on in the country at that time, yeah. as well as in, in, the, in the much smaller lives of your Well, it was the little things. It was the, it's where you've got one person in the family saying... X amount of people have died and someone else in the family is saying, it's fine, we can't close the schools and the universities or the whole country will have to close down and that's not going to happen. Yeah. I mean, I think this is the first of many books that are mm. going to come out that, that, that feature that mm. time. But I love the fact that it was you know, written kind of simultaneously. Yeah. What's next? Well, I, if my editor agrees, I'm going to um, do a follow-up with this character. But who knows? I mean, she probably left Roy by now. Who knows? How wonderful. We'll find out. Nina Stubby, thank you so much.
One Day I Shall Astonish the World is published by Penguin. And you've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the production team of Nora Hole and Emily Sands. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or app, from Spotify, Mixcloud or iTunes. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>